Spectrums next. Welcome to Spectrum, the science and technology show on KALX Berkeley, a bi-weekly 30-minute program bringing you interviews featuring Bay Area scientists and technologists, as well as a calendar of local events and news. Good afternoon. My name is Brad Swift. I'm joined today by Spectrum contributors Rick Karnaski and Lisa Katovich. Rick and I interview Joe Cordaro a principal member of the technical staff at Sandia National Laboratories in Livermore. He is a research chemist. Joe received his Ph.D. in chemistry from UC Berkeley. He talks with us about his work in concentrated solar power systems. Joe, welcome to Spectrum. Thank you, Rick. Can you explain to us a little bit about concentrated solar power? Sure, I'd be happy to. People have looked at using mirrors to focus light to do exactly what uh, we are now doing in the 21st century since the mid-17 and 1800s. There's a few uh, reports of people using mirrors to focus sunlight to heat up water in a boiler to generate steam for creating a pump for irrigation. There's also been a report of a printing press that was powered off of steam that was generated uh, using mirrors to focus light to once again heat up a boiler. Um, That all happened in the 19th, early 20th century. But from about the early 1920s until the 1970s, not a lot of work went into looking at concentrated solar power to make electricity. Primarily, that was because at the same time, that research to make solar electricity from sunlight was taking off, oil was discovered, and that became much cheaper and economical than it was to invest in technology to look at concentrated solar power. So concentrated solar power is a method by using mirrors to focus the sun's rays onto a type of central receiver in order to boil water to turn a turbine to generate electricity. So it's really a complicated way to boil water just to make electricity, but it works. And it only uses the sun as the sort of input for energy. Yeah, it's actually pretty amazing that we we don't use this more often because there is no emission from it, there's no greenhouse gases, there's no radioactive material, and it's mostly made using commodity parts that can almost 70% be made in the United States. So there's three main architectures for concentrated solar power. There's the Stirling engine, there's parabolic trough systems, and then there's a central receiver tower. The Stirling engines are uh, maybe the most efficient type of concentrated solar power, but they also have the most moving parts, and uh, reliability is somewhat low right now. They're module, so you can add one and then another and another and another and increase your field side based on demand. You can also just stick one in your backyard if you had the money to buy it and uh, didn't mind the thumping noise that the Sterling pump makes, so they're a little loud. The most employed type of a concentrated solar power facility right now is a parabolic trough system. And in a parabolic trough system, you have a field of mirrors that are focused on a central tube that runs through the parabolic trough. And this tube is about three inches in diameter. And inside the tube is a working fluid, and it's usually a silicon-based oil. And the silicon-based oil is used because the uh, operating temperature for that is around zero degrees Celsius up to 450. 
If you're in the desert, you typically have cold winter nights, so you need to have a flu that doesn't solidify at nighttime in the wintertime. And so zero is a pretty good uh, lower limit. But the uh, heat transfer fluid based on silicon is slightly expensive. And how is that upper limit established? How hot can these things really go? So the upper limit would be the thermal stability of the working fluid, and the upper stability is just dependent on the chemical nature of the fluid. So the bond strengths of the actual carbon, oxygen, and silicon bonds within the heat transfer fluid. But as far as the amount of heat energy that could be sort of harvested? That's uh, going to be dependent on the thermal heat capacity of the fluid times the actual density times the uh, flow rate. So the more heat you can store per volume, per time, will give you uh, more energy out at the end of the day. But all that is going to be dependent on factors like your thermal conductivity between the tube that is holding the heat transfer fluid, and then also the heat exchangers that are down the line when you convert from a silicon oil heat to steam heat. So there's a lot of limiting factors that uh, control your efficiency of these things, and a lot of losses also. Third type of concentrated solar power facility is called a central receiver tower. And in those systems, you have one tower that could maybe be 50 to uh, 100 meters above the ground. And that tower is surrounded by a field of mirrors, and those mirrors are flat. We also call them heliostats. And those mirrors track the sun and then reflect the sun's rays onto the central receiver tower. And the central receiver tower has a molten salt inside of it. And the temperature of that usually goes up to about 550 degrees Celsius. And the reason why we're using molten salt is because you can get a higher operating temperature than you can with the silicon fluid. And this molten salt heats up to its operating temperature, which is then pumped only a short distance to a heat exchanger, which then boils water to turn a turbine to make electricity. This is Spectrum on KALX Berkeley. We are talking with Joe Cordaro of Sandia National Laboratories about concentrated solar power. And are we limited at all about where we would deploy a concentrated solar power plant? Are these all going to end up in the deserts of Arizona? or? So one of the main limitations for concentrated solar power is that you do need to have good sunlight. You do need to have many, many days of sunlight per year with a high intensity. So putting a concentrated solar power field up in northern Europe or the northeast of the United States doesn't always make sense economically. It's much better to put it in the desert in California or Arizona or New Mexico or Utah or in Africa. So the key being cloud-free? Cloud-free with uh, lower uh, latitudes. And how prevalent are concentrated solar-powered plants right now? Well, they're building them pretty rapidly, but I think the total percentage of the electricity we get in the United States is probably less than 1%. But they're building these plants in California and Arizona especially central receiver towers. There's a big plant being built in Ivanpah, which is outside Barstow. There's a couple being built outside Las Vegas and Phoenix. They're building them in Morocco. They're building them in uh, Italy. There's quite a few in Spain, and there's some in France. Israel's building them. The amount of electricity coming from these plants is uh, increasing, but it's still nothing compared to coal or natural gas. So central receiver towers are being explored a lot more because they have the potential for higher efficiency because you can go to a higher temperature. So the Carnot efficiency basically says that the higher difference in temperature between your hot and cold for doing work gives you the higher efficiency. So if you can increase your high operating temperature, 
to five, six, seven, eight hundred degrees Celsius, but keep your low operating temperature still above the boiling point of water, you'll have a much more efficient cycle. So if you're limited by your heat transfer fluid thermal stability of 450 degrees, then your uh, overall efficiency of the plant will be limited. So a lot of the work that the Department of Energy is doing to try to improve the efficiencies of these systems is to look at higher operating temperatures. But with higher operating temperatures comes also uh, materials compatibility issues and then also higher losses. So as you go to higher temperature, you not only get better efficiency for your Carnot efficiency, but you also get higher radiative losses. So you actually start to lose more heat throughout your whole system and your materials become more difficult to match and costs go, costs go really high. And why is that? Well, materials are becoming a big issue. There's not a lot of industries that currently use high-temperature materials, except the nuclear industry. So if you want to do large-scale industrial power plants, you really want to stick with commodity items that can be purchased cheaply. Otherwise, the costs are too expensive. So there's a lot of analysis that goes into trying to decide, if I increase my temperature by just 200 degrees or even 100 degrees, is the efficiency gain worth the cost? So one of the big issues with these cost and material selection are the corrosion issues with your heat transfer fluid. So if you have a fluid that's operating at 700 or 800 degrees Celsius, you start to have incompatible uh, materials between your heat transfer fluid and the actual material the pipe is made out of. And are most of these salt baths very simple sort of two-ion component systems like this? Well, the only actual molten salt used in the fields now are based off of sodium, potassium, nitrate, and nitrite mixture. So there are four components, two to four components, and they're pretty simple. But they do have reactive properties with a lot of alloys. So there are still some corrosion issues, especially when you get above 550 degrees. So there's the long-term stability of the molten salt bath or the molten salt storage tank or the molten salt pipes uh, that have to be considered because it's a 30-year plant that we expect to design. So most power plants are built with the idea that it's going to have a 30-year lifetime. So you have to figure out what's going to happen over 30 years. And the rate of a simple chemical reaction usually doubles with every 10 degrees increase in temperature. So if you have a simple first-order reaction like the decomposition of a molten salt and you increase the temperature by 10 degrees, you can expect your rate to double. And so that starts to really matter if you're looking at something that's going to be a 30-year lifetime. You're listening to Spectrum on KALX Berkeley. Brad Swift and Rick Karneski are talking with Joe Cordaro about concentrated solar power. So how intense is the beam once all these mirrors reflect it into the molten salt? The central receiver tower, like I described, has a large receiving window that may be 10 by 10 meters. And it's a target area that's painted black in order to absorb as much sunlight as possible from maybe 100, maybe 200, or maybe 1,000 mirrors in the field. And they're focusing the sun's energy onto the central target in order to get a really, really high temperature so that you can heat up some working heat transfer fluid. The way that a lot of the engineers describe the intensity is by the number of suns that are being focused onto that area. And you're focusing all those mirrors on a central spot, but you can get up to 3,000 suns being focused onto a single spot. 3,000 suns is quite a high 
amount of energy and also very high temperature. And there have been reports of birds that have flown in the path of this sun. It's hot enough that they've burst into a little ball of fire and then fallen down into a fiery death below. Fortunately, it's only a few birds every once in a while, but that's how hot it does get in front of those uh, receivers. You get nowhere that high of intensity in a parabolic trough system because you only have one large curved mirror focusing the sunlight onto a tube rather than hundreds of mirrors all focusing onto a central receiver. Can you explain more about how you store? The, is it the heat you're storing or you heat, what are you storing actually? And so one of the biggest advantages of concentrated solar power is the ability to store thermal heat. When you use the sun to generate electricity, you're depending on the sun's sunlight to be consistent, on the rays to be consistent. And if a cloud goes in front of the sun and you're generating electricity using photovoltaics, your power drops to zero until the cloud moves out of the sky. At nighttime, you can't generate any electricity either because you don't have any sun. If you look at the peak demand time for electricity in the United States, it tracks with the daytime sun, which is good, but then it also continues into the evening until 6, 7, 8 o'clock at night when everyone comes home at night and turns on their washer and dryer, turns on their television, and turns on their dishwasher. If you don't have any electricity on the grid available, then you're going to have a big problem. Coal and nuclear power plants can just generate electricity 24 hours a day without any problem. So concentrated solar power offers the ability to do that as well through what we call thermal storage. So if you have a huge field of parabolic troughs that are heating up a heat transfer fluid to a high temperature, you can then take this fluid and store it into a large tank. And this hot fluid is going to stay hot for 8, 12, 20 hours, depending on how big you build that tank. So now if you have a hot tank that's storing all of this heat, you can draw heat from that tank rather than drawing it from the field. So you can decouple the power generation cycle from the actual solar sunlight. So the tank is kept at a high temperature and constantly being recharged by the sun. But if the sun disappears, you have a reserve of fluid that's still hot that you can use to generate electricity by boiling water. And the size of that tank is dependent on how many hours of storage you want. So people will make these tanks based off of an 8-hour storage cycle or a 10-hour or 12-hour storage time. So typically they're made off of an 8-hour storage time because no one needs a lot of electricity at 4 or 5 in the morning. And then the sun comes back up again, and you can start your whole plant back up. And that makes it much easier to tie into the grid and much easier to distribute electricity to the population. So it's what we call a dispatchable electricity generation. And that's a big advantage for concentrated solar power compared to wind or photovoltaics. And what happens to the system if the outage is longer? So you, you don't just have to worry about night, but you have to worry about clouds or dust storms? or. So there's a lot of potential backups that can be engineered into a system, one of them being gas-powered burners just put in line to boil water to power the system in reverse, basically. So if there was a really big problem where you had no sunlight for a week, you could potentially use natural gas burners to boil water, but cycle it in reverse. And so then the water goes and operates as a heat transfer fluid to actually warm up the salt again. Fortunately, the historical data, I think, shows that that just is not a big risk. I mean, you wouldn't build a plant in the Northeast where you actually could have a week of cloud cover and cold, rainy weather. You'd build a plant in the desert and 
a week with no sun doesn't happen. There's been plants that have been in operation for 30 years in the desert in California. And there's historical data that is available to kind of map out where in the world you would build these plants that goes back many, many, many years. And the Department of Energy has collected this data, specifically uh, the National Renewable Energy Lab, or NREL in Colorado, has a lot of this data. And industry and the national labs work strongly together to try to figure out where the best place is to build these plants that have not only the highest solar radiation, but also the lowest environmental impact when you build a plant. Because despite it being a zero emitter of greenhouse gases, there are environmental issues related to water usage and also endangered species and uh, and land usage and too, land right? Usage, I mean, they're pretty yeah. big. Yeah, they can be quite large. So there are some land issues that are associated with building a system in the middle of the desert. There's also issues about how do you get the electricity to where consumers actually live. If you build a power plant in the middle of the desert, but everyone lives a couple hundred miles away or thousands of miles away, how do you actually get the electricity to more populated areas? And this is an issue Europe is dealing with because they want to build power plants in North Africa and then have electricity shipped to continental Europe somehow. So it's another topic, but they're looking at ways to make high-voltage DC transmission lines from northern Europe down into Africa so you can actually distribute the electricity from where it's generated. Joe Cordaro is our guest. The show is Spectrum. The station is KALX Berkeley. The topic is concentrated solar power. And what are some of the other open research questions that are out there besides the materials compatibility issues that you... Some of the other areas are looking at how do you actually set up a field of mirrors that may be 50 acres big and then get every one of those mirrors to actually align properly without making it an incredibly expensive task. So all of these mirrors have to track the sun at the same angle and you have to figure out how can you put all these mirrors on some type of mechanical platform that moves to track the sun and then uh, direct the sunlight efficiently because just a small error in one of the mirrors can really change your beam and decrease your efficiency quite significantly. You also have to think about what happens when a big windstorm comes around in the desert and you have 70-mile-an-hour winds. So now all the mirrors have to be stowed, turned pretty much horizontal so that they don't get blown away. Then you have to worry about the uh, sand that comes by in a polishes the mirrors or unpolishes the mirrors so there's a lot of technology goes into the coatings figuring out new pumps valves and fittings when you're running at 800 degrees so you can pump a fluid at 500 degrees we have commercial equipment to do that but using that equipment at 700 or 800 degrees hasn't been tested so manufacturers will make things that they say possibly will work at 800 but it's not actually been tested at 800 and then we don't even have sensors to measure things at 800 on a large scale like this. To measure what kind of things? Uh, viscosity is a big one. So we want to know how fast a fluid is flowing through a pipe so we can calculate how much heat is coming out so we know how much steam we're going to generate. And trying to measure viscosity at 800 degrees hasn't been done either. So we have active programs to look at making new sensors for viscosity. Some of the other issues... Um, trying to get more efficient steam cycles actually there are commercially available turbines to make steam for the uh, coal and natural gas industry that have been around for 50 75 years 
and they work really well up to a certain temperature. But if you can go higher with your heat transfer fluid, then you want to go higher with your turbine as well. And then using steam no longer is efficient. And so people are looking at other types of cycles that don't use water anymore to make steam, but they're using supercritical CO2 or helium or some other type of gas for what we call air brayton cycles. And those could operate up to 1,200 degrees. And Japan has actually looked at those for quite a while, but America has been pretty scared of looking at a 1,200-degree high-pressure systems. Just as far as the risk. Yeah. As far as the risk goes, it is a little bit more dangerous when you have 1,200 degrees and high, high-pressure systems. But the efficiency could be a lot higher. So all of this is still open for optimization. All of it requires inputs from systems engineers to finance people to determine the cost, whether it's worth it, down to scientists to determine stability and compatibility of parts. So the last thing you want to do is build a big field and then have to replace a huge portion of it in three years because you have something break and that'll make the entire project economically a non-starter. So the risks have to be reduced as, as much as possible. Joe, how was it that you became involved in concentrated solar power? After I got to Sandia National Labs, I began working in the concentrated solar power research project because I was a chemist and looking at materials, compatibility issues, and also stability issues of heat transfer fluids. And while it doesn't sound like the most sexy area of chemistry to be in, formulating new salts and looking at high temperature materials, I really, really enjoy it because it is actually being built, it is actually real science being turned into engineering projects that is actually being deployed throughout the world to solve our problems and to make us energy independent. So unlike a lot of academic research that I did in school, concentrated solar power is real. It's being done and it's being put to use. And that makes me incredibly excited about being part of that project. Joe Cordaro, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. A regular feature of Spectrum is to mention a few of the science and technology events happening in the Bay Area over the next few weeks. Rick and Lisa join me for the calendar. UC Berkeley's Institute of East Asian Studies will hold a symposium titled Towards Long-Term Sustainability in Response to the Fukushima Nuclear Disaster. It takes place today and tomorrow, and it starts soon at 1.30 to 5.30 today, so you better hurry up and get over there. But if you can't make it today, tomorrow will feature three speakers, all of whom have been actively involved in analyzing the Fukushima nuclear plant accident, its historical context, and the sociopolitical actions taken by the various stakeholders. The symposium will situate the causes and the consequences of the disaster in the context of a long-term sustainable future. For more information, go to the website ieas at berkeley.edu. Cal Day is tomorrow, Saturday, April 21st. The Berkeley campus, the museums, the botanical garden are open to the public. There are a wide variety of presentations and facilities you can tour. For details, go to the website calday.berkeley.edu. On June 5, 2012, Venus will transit or pass directly in front of the sun. A transit like this is so rare, no human alive today will witness it again. The next one will not be until 2117. 
Get ready for this event by going to the Transit of Venus Planetarium Program at the Lawrence Hall of Science this Saturday on Cal Day at 3 p.m. Learn why transits are so rare, how studying transits taught us exactly how big our solar system is, and how they may be the key to discovering other Earths in other star systems. Then come back on June 5th and observe the actual transit of Venus at the Lawrence Hall of Science. The hall will have several solar telescopes for viewing the eclipse safely on the main plaza. Most of us are aware of the obesity epidemic facing the United States, but is, is it simply a matter of calories in, calories out? On Thursday, May 3rd, from 1210 to 1 p.m. in the auditorium of the Berkeley Art Museum, UCSF neuroendocrinologist Robert Lustig will present the lecture Health, Darwin, Diet, Disease, and Dollars. He will examine some of the more controversial dietary factors contributing to the obesity epidemic, the role that these obesogens potentially play in our evolution toward an unhealthy nation, and possible solutions for turning this trend around. You must register for this event. Go to uhs.berkeley.edu. On Saturday, April 28th, at 1.30 p.m., the Commonwealth Club and the Youth Science Initiative host the research group lead for Pixar and our guest on Spectrum two weeks from today, Tony DeRose. Standard admission is $20, Commonwealth Club members get in for 12 and it is $7 for students 18 and under. The talk will be at the Los Altos High School Eagle Theater, 201 Almond Avenue in Los Altos. Tony will discuss how math is central to Pixar's film production process and also the Young Makers program. That's the topic of our interview in the next episode of Spectrum. Students are teamed up with adult mentors to design and build ambitious projects for the Maker Fair. For tickets and more information, visit www.commonwealthclub.org. Another future Spectrum guest, Maggie Korth Baker, will also be giving a lecture soon. Maggie is the science editor of BoingBoing.net and will be discussing her recent book, Before the Lights Go Out, Conquering the Energy Crisis Before it Conquers Us. She'll put the fun back in infrastructure and describe the surprising ways our electric system evolved, what we can and can't do about the energy crisis now, and what the future might hold. This is the spring seminar for the Berkeley Science Review and will take place in the Li Ka Xing building, room 345, on Wednesday, May 2nd at 6 p.m. RSVP at berc.berkeley.edu. Pseudoroom, a newly forming East Bay hackerspace, is having a free kickoff and fundraiser on Friday, May 4th at 7 p.m. at Tech Liminal, 268 14th Street in downtown Oakland. Pseudoroom is a collaborative community of tech developers, citizen scientists, activists, and artists. Mitch Altman, co founder of Noisebridge, will discuss hackerspaces. For more information, visit sudoroom.org. Now the news. Significant declines are expected in the number of emperor penguins over the next century due to earlier spring warming around Antarctica. A new study in the April 13th edition of Science Daily reports that an international team of scientists using satellite mapping technology reveals there are twice as many emperor penguins in Antarctica than previously thought. Using a technique known as pan sharpening to increase the resolution of the satellite imagery, they were able to differentiate between birds, ice, shadow, and penguin guano. In the first comprehensive census of a species taken from space, 595,000 birds were counted, almost double the previous estimates.
The origin of cosmic rays has long been and remains a mystery. The Ice Cube collaboration, in which Berkeley Lab is a crucial contributor, published an article in the April 18th issue of Nature on their exhaustive search for high-energy neutrinos that would likely be produced if the violent extragalactic explosions, known as gamma-ray bursts, are a source of ultra-high-energy cosmic rays. They saw no events that corresponded to these bursts when they would predict to see at least 8.4 events that correspond to some of the 215 gamma-ray bursts detected from two periods in 2008 and 2009. There are other popular models for the origin of cosmic rays, including active galactic nuclei. The IceCube Neutrino Telescope encompasses a cubic kilometer of ice under the South Pole and has over 5,000 digital optical modules that track the direction and energy of speeding muons, which are created when neutrinos collide with atoms in the ice. On a later episode of Spectrum, you'll hear from Spencer Klein and Thorsten Setzelberger about this experiment. Visit icecube.wisc.edu for more information. Thanks to Rick Karnaski and Lisa Katovich for help producing the show. The music heard during the show is by Lestana David from his album Folk and Acoustic, made available through a Creative Commons Attribution License 3.0. Spectrum shows are now available online at iTunes University. Go to itunes.berkeley.edu. Thank you for listening to Spectrum. If you have comments about the show, please send them to us via email. Our email address is spectrum.kalx at yahoo.com Join us in two weeks at this same time.